I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 1. We've been singing of the birth of the Savior this morning. And as we sing, as I mentioned earlier, we should always be aware of the rich truth from the Word of God that is in the song text. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. And in the heavenly country bright, thinking of the new earth, need they no created light. Christ, its light, its joy, its crown. Christ, its sun that goes not down. That will be a remarkable, marvelous finality of what God has done for us in Christ. And so the song is right. There forever may we sing hallelujahs to our King. And we want to sing hallelujahs to our King now. Well, at the opening of the letter of Hebrews, as we've seen, we have the word of God itself rich in Christology, profound in its exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author begins in verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he says, He has spoken to us by His Son, And God began to speak through the Son. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, born a child and yet a king. This is a Christmas text that we've been looking at. And yes, the Son of God would speak to the world in many ways, primarily through his humanity and his deity, through what he proclaimed when he dwelled on this earth, and especially through his cross work and his resurrection, through which he became our high priest, Hebrews tells us. But God was speaking through his son, even as he was born in this lowly stable, in this small town where he was humbly laid in a manger, a feeding trough. Because as Matthew reminds us, Isaiah said that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, Im-Anu-El, with us, God. When Christ was born, God was physically with us. It tells us that in the person of this child, God is present with his people. He is among us through Christ, not just watching from a distance, but among us. That is why when the author of Hebrews says that God in time past spoke through the prophets, but now he has finally spoken through the son. He's not saying that Jesus is merely one of many ways that God has spoken. And now, now, uh, you know, God has spoken to the prophets and this way and that way. And now Jesus has come. Here's another way that God is speaking to us. What the text means is that Jesus is the ultimate world, a word, the final speech from God. Once God speaks through Jesus, There is no other word coming. The author makes that true in a lot of contexts in Hebrews. If if you don't take Christ for salvation, there's no other salvation. He is the final word. He's the climax of history, the pinnacle of all that God is doing to redeem the world for his glory. So we've noticed as we've unpacked this text over the last couple of weeks that as soon as the author mentions the son in this text, everything becomes about Jesus Christ whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The letter of Hebrews rivets our attention right away upon Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all God that is promised because he is our hope, both in our walk with Christ for today and for the future that we're going to. And what we have seen in the last couple of weeks is that there's a progression in the ideas that he uses to talk about the son. The middle statements in this seven statement section proclaim the essence of Christ. Christ is the final word because he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Two statements that declare him to be unmistakably God. And working from the middle to the outer edges of the text, we see that he is the final word because of his work. He created the world, he upholds the world, and he redeems the world. And the focus here is specifically on the redemption of the people that are in the world who have embraced Jesus Christ for sin. If you've come to a point in your life where you have recognized your need for forgiveness from a holy God, And on that basis, have reached out for a rescuer outside of yourself and found that rescuer in the Lord Jesus Christ and embraced him for salvation. That is how you come to know Christ as Savior. You take what Christ has already done for you on the cross and make it your own. You believe in it by faith and believe in his resurrection. And for those of us who have embraced Christ, he is our redeemer and he continues to redeem us. And finally, we come this morning to the first and final statements of the text, the two on the outer edges. Here we see that Jesus is the final word because of his status. He is the owner and the ruler of all things. Verse two, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And verse three, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So I want to consider for a few moments this morning, before we go to the table, the status of of the Son. The letter of Hebrews rivets our attention upon Christ as the final word of God, the fulfillment of all that God has promised, not only because of his essence and his work, but because of his status. What is that status? What is that position that Jesus holds? Well, the answer to that question is bound up in these two statements. The writer says that Jesus is the one whom he, that's God the Father, appointed the heir of all things. Now, what does that mean? You think about it for a few moments. It makes it sound like the father owns the entire universe. But God, the son, Jesus Christ, is inheriting it. He's giving it to him. How is this possible? Are not God, the father, and God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit, equally God? Doesn't doesn't the scripture say that they equally own everything that they created? Yes, there is a sense, a sense in which that is true, essentially. But if you've studied the doctrine of the Trinity, you find out that the members of the Trinity are equal in essence. They're all God, but they are unique in their function. They're different in function. They have agreed that God the Father will be the decision maker of the Trinity, the one who has the final say. And the Son will carry out the will of the Father, And the Holy Spirit will apply the work of the Father and the Son. That is why when you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, you you notice this. If you're familiar with John, Jesus is always saying things like this. I've come to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he says, 
I can't say anything or do anything unless the Father says. That's what Jesus insisted in the Gospel of John again and again. He put himself under the authority of the Father. That's one of the things Paul means in Philippians 2 when he says that before Jesus came to earth for us, though he was in the form of God, which is another way to say that Jesus is God, just like we've seen in Hebrews 1, even though he was God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't insist on hanging on to that divine status, that position, that all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present creator and sustainer of the universe. He set all of that aside. And I know this scripture is very familiar to us. In fact, I I hope most of you have this memorized. If not, that's a good assignment over Christmas is to put Philippians 2, 6 to 11 in your mind so that you can dwell on it. But this text is central to the meaning of our salvation. He emptied himself, it says, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. When you look at the image of the child in the manger, which you can still see, especially in church context, but even in the world, they still, some people, put the baby in the manger to show you what Christmas is all about. And so some people are ticked off that we're trying to make Christmas a religious holiday. Uh, But, you know, sometimes you, you can see that still. And when you see those images of Jesus in the manger, in the manger, that's God, the sustainer, and creator of the universe. That's God setting aside his glory so that he could serve the Father, so that he could get under submission in order to serve us and be born a human being like us. We've all heard people, or I should say stories of people, who willingly gave up incredible status For instance, there are stories of those who were in line to inherit a royal throne, even some recent stories. And they gave it up because they were in love with somebody else who was a commoner compared to somebody who's royalty. But there is no amount of wealth, no height of position or authority, no greater glory that we can imagine beyond being the Lord of the universe. And Jesus gave that up to become one of us. He laid it aside. He didn't relinquish it forever. That's impossible because he's God. But he laid it aside because he loved us. And not only that, Paul isn't done here. He says, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And Paul's not even done there. Even death on a cross. We've got to let that sink in sometimes. The child in the manger will grow in obedience to the father and offer his life in death for us, even the horrible, torturous, and humiliating death of crucifixion. From a height impossible for us to imagine to a depth impossible for us to comprehend, Jesus descended. But because of this, God the Father exalts the Son. He lifts him up to a status a ruler over all. Therefore, verse 9 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, which means Savior, at that name, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus stooped down to serve us and to serve the Father when he came to suffer and die. But now he bows to no one. And that is the status, by the way, that he holds as we have seen him in the book of Revelation when he comes to judge and reign. Jesus is not bowing to anybody in the book of Revelation. Have you noticed that as we've studied it? Some of you don't remember when we've studied it. It's been a while, right? We're picking that up at the beginning of of the new year again in chapter 14. I haven't forgotten. Uh, But when we see Jesus there, he is the stunning king that everybody has to reckon with and nobody can get away from. They would rather call for the the rocks to fall on them and crush them and and do away with them than they have to face the wrath of this coming lamb. That's Jesus exalted. And that is what the author of Hebrews is referring to here in Hebrews chapter one. The letter of Hebrews opens not like the gospel of Matthew with the humble birth of the son. The letter of Hebrews opens with the triumphant exaltation of the son. And that exaltation continues through the letter. In fact, if we were to keep reading through the letter of Hebrews, we would realize that the author of Hebrews is fixated upon several Old Testament passages that he uses to point to Jesus Christ as this exalted one. In particular, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, and Psalm 110 form part of his text that he's preaching through the letter of Hebrews. I'm not going to take time this morning to show you how he does that, but I do want you to listen to some of the words from these Psalms and notice how they point to a coming king who will be exalted as Lord. For example, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, this is addressed to a human king in the context, but the author of Hebrews applies it to the father's relationship with the son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And in Psalm 8, this psalm speaks of the glory of humankind in general, but the author of Hebrews applies it to the Father's relationship with Christ, the ultimate human being. He says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And in Psalm 110, this is a psalm that originally spoke of David but it is applied in Hebrews to David's greatest son, to Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus applies this psalm to himself in Matthew 22 and Luke 20. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In Jewish society, the idea of being a son and the inheritance, they go hand in hand. You're a son, you're going to inherit. If you were a father's firstborn son, you stood to inherit most of the possessions. Remember the story of the prodigal son, how he goes to his father and says, give me the portion that's coming to me. The arrogance is not that he asks for that. The arrogance is that he wants it early. He expected this to happen. The the father probably talked about it. You know, you guys work really hard. We'll get a little more wealth. You'll have more to take with you. This was the normal thing. The inheritance tradition was especially important in Israel because God had promised to his people the land for their inheritance. And the land was possessed by the heads of the families. This is a very important thing in Israel's culture. So the nature of your inheritance, the significance of it, the status of it, the value of it, depended precisely on the wealth and the position of your father. In this case, Jesus is the heir of all things because of the position of the Father. The Father appointed him to be the heir of all things. 
But there's more here with the Father and the Son because the Son is exalted to a status of inheritance not only because of his Father's position but also because of his own position. He is the creator of all things, Hebrews 1 says. So he is the rightful owner of all things. Now we'll put this together with the other phrase in just a moment, but let me move on to this next phrase where Jesus Christ takes his station above every other created thing because he's appointed. And then it says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The megalosune, the majesty, the greatness of the great one on high. I want you to notice just a couple of things about this statement. I want you to notice he sat down. He sat down. In the letter of Hebrews, Jesus appears as a seated priest, a seated priest. If you think of Jesus Christ in Hebrews, think of him as seated. That's how Hebrews talks of him. He appears sitting down. And I'll show you what I mean. Hebrews 8, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 12, 2. Look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Hebrews 10, starting in verse 11, every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There are two observations I want to make once I have read this text. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus Christ is a single priest seated. In contrast to, if you'll notice, other priests, plural, who are standing. Why are they standing? They're standing because their work of offering sacrifices is never, ever, ever finished. Christ is seated because he offered one sacrifice and that was all that was needed. And that is our hope as believers in Christ, that the one sacrifice that we need, the one shedding of blood for sin has already been offered. Do you realize as a believer in Christ, there's nothing more to do except to rejoice and to worship and to, and to yield to that spirit who now indwells us, leading us to glorify God? But there's a second observation. I said there were two. When, when the author pictures Jesus as seated, I want you to realize he's not saying merely that Jesus is sitting down because he's resting. Like his ordeal on planet earth is over. Like we do sometimes when we come back from a very busy day and we're like, we've got that one chair maybe or that one place and we just sit down. Maybe it's, maybe it's your bed. You crawl in, you're like, oh, I just want to be here for a while and, and nobody bothers me. That's not the kind of thing that's going on here with Jesus sitting down like he's tired. And he's not sitting down only because his work is finished. Jesus is sitting because he is reigning. And I want you to notice the reference to his footstool. That's the furniture you find in the throne room. The footstool is the royal stool the king uses when he rests his feet while sitting on the throne. These two statements that Jesus Christ is appointed to inherit the entire universe and he's the heir of all things and that he's co-reigning with the father, a seated king and priest, 
This is the language of extreme exaltation. In short, Jesus Christ is exalted in these opening verses to the highest position of the universe. Now, what does that mean for us? We reflect upon this at Christmas time. Well, there are a lot of implications. The vision of Christ high and exalted keeps us from simply being nostalgic about the baby in the manger. We're tempted to be that way, especially as you get older and you have kids and grandkids, right? Okay. You, you, you get a little nostalgic about that and, and, and Christmas becomes this very sweet time and it is and I would never want to rob that from anybody. But if we're worshiping Jesus Christ, this child that we're beholding is the highest king and it calls us to worship him. And realizing that he is our exalted king has implications for our obedience. I mean, we call him king, right? Do we submit to him as our coming king? Like I said, there's a lot of implications from what we're reading here in Hebrews 1. But if I could focus our attention on a, in a single direction, I would ask you to reflect for a moment on why the Father exalted Jesus Christ to begin with. Why he is greatly exalted by the Father. And the answer is because of his humility. Because of his humility. I want you to notice it's right after The text says, making purification for our sins, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His exaltation is a result of his humiliation. He was raised to the greatest heights because he was willing to go to the greatest depths. We were already reminded of this in Philippians chapter 2, but the author of Hebrews speaks of it also. These are not all the texts I could show you, but We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That's in his humility. We see him now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. He went low and God brought him high. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2.17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He was made like one of us so that he could be exalted to that high position. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. This is a very intense verb in this text to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I pointed out last week in Hebrews, Jesus is becoming something he was not before. And here we see it again. And that coming to what he was not before always comes through his humility on his way to his exaltation. And I love and think about often this verse in Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross while despising the shame and is set down where? At the right hand of the throne of God. It's not just you and me who think, okay, I I can get through this. God's going to be with me. He's promised one day that there's there's this, this glory and that I will be with him forever. Jesus Christ himself 
for the joy that was set before him, showed us how this works as he went to the cross. Do you see the overarching theme here? Before Jesus was exalted, he went through deep humility. We naturally, you and I both, we shy away from this kind of thinking. We don't like this very much, practically. We learn from those in our secular culture that if you want something, whether it's money or power, greatness, glory, whatever it is, you've got to go get it. You've got to reach for it. You have to exalt yourself. We see this in the workplace. We see it on college campuses. We see it in the marketplace. We also see it on a very common level in our peer groups and in our homes. We don't like to be overlooked or have our needs unmet or go without, especially when somebody else doesn't have to, or remain unrecognized while less deserving people are getting the recognition. We hate to have our ideas contradicted by someone of less stature than ourselves or less experience. We get annoyed with people rather than forbearing with them. Or we get offended and refuse to have an attitude of forgiveness. And when we do that, we're not aware that we have an unforgiving attitude. Our refusal to reach out to that other brother or sister in Christ is justified in our minds because after all, you know what they did and you know what kind of person they are. That's the way we think. We don't think we're unforgiving. We love to serve, especially when people are watching. Not so that they praise us for serving necessarily, but at least so they think well of us that that we're being a good example. What if the Lord pointed us towards some menial, dirty task in an out-of-the-way place that he wanted us to do for him day after day, week after week, and nobody ever knew about it and nobody ever cared? Is that how we would be content serving the Lord? Now, I could go on because I'm beating myself up. Well, I beat you up at the same time. But what's beating us up? It's it's the example of Christ. At the center of each of these ideas is this common theme that we all struggle with, this, this question we all struggle with. And it is how far are we willing to come down from our lofty position in order to love and serve someone else without any thought of ourselves like Jesus did? How far are we willing to stoop? Do we have to come down so far? Is it really from some towering pinnacle that we must ascend? No, of course not. That's only in our minds. The real height from which someone descended was the height from which Jesus came. And we're reminded of it every Christmas. We're reminded of it when we remember that when Jesus was born, he was not even offered a corner in a crowded Bethlehem inn. He had to find his first bed in a dirty stable. We're reminded of it when we realize that the only people who came to celebrate his birth, think about it, the only people were shepherds who were considered some of the lowliest in society. I mean, people thought they were thieves. Uh, If something was missing, it's probably shepherds were around and they smelled bad. That's what people thought. The shepherds came to worship Jesus and then pagans from the east, non-Jews who were there, who showed up. And notice the people in Herod's royal court didn't even bother going with them to find out. 
They were the ones who bowed and worshiped Jesus, the tiny Jewish king. Jesus' lowliness is highlighted in the fact that Joseph had to get the family out of town all the way to Egypt because the young Jesus was in danger. And his humility is recognized in the fact that his hometown was Nazareth. That's an unsavory on the other side of the tracks kind of town. That's where he grew up. And we consider that this Jesus is still the creator and sustainer of the universe. When we think about where he went to in his humility and who he actually is, it is staggering. I mean, there are no words to describe that depth. The great height that we think we have to come down from in order to serve others with the same humility compared to Jesus' humility is actually microscopic not even worth mentioning, not even noticeable. And I'm afraid you and I both, we dishonor the Lord when we know so much about his humility, but we struggle to imitate it. On the other hand, we worship the Lord truly and bring him great honor and learn to love him more when we follow his example. When we can say, like Paul says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in us that was also in Christ Jesus. And when we bow before him as king, when we yield to him, when we submit to him our time and resources and energy for his glory and for others' good, we are honoring Jesus Christ. When we are content to find our exaltation only by being exalted in him, the final word from God, the ultimate fulfillment of what God has promised, we are bringing honor and glory to him. Jesus is the final word because of his essence. He is God himself. He's our final word because of his work. He created us and sustains us and redeems us. And Jesus is the final word because of his status. He went low, but now he is exalted over all. And that status came through profound humility. I think there's a wonderful lesson for us here. Without just reflecting nicely on the manger, saying, Lord, what does this mean for me? as your child. So let's celebrate our Lord Jesus this Christmas. Let's celebrate big. But let's truly honor him by embracing and emulating his love and humility that led him to die for us, that he might save us forever. Father,